Amen. Thank you, Jacob. I sure love that. Um, not I, but Christ. The first, first verse, what gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more that heaven now to give. The completeness of Christ is just so wonderful and just so... It is the impetus for which we do that last hymn, Wherever You Lead, I'll Go. And missionaries have been doing that all throughout the ages. So it's a joy to be reminded of that. Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you. I'm glad that you're here with us. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. If you're a student, welcome back. Turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you would. We're going to continue and study through the Word of God, instructions for the church, and in particular, guidelines for public worship. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read uh, together all the way down through the end of the chapter. Picking up with verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Stop right there. Powerful words from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, pastoring a church in Ephesus, still relevant for us today. And we have studied over the last several weeks as the Apostle Paul laid out a number of very simple principles concerning pursuit of godliness. What did it look like to be godly and to pursue godliness? Things that will mark the faithful servant of Jesus. And we've seen that these things are things everyone can understand. In particular, if you want to be spiritually fit, and that's commanded, and many of these are in the command form, verses 1 through uh, 8, then you'll have to work out spiritually because the good servant of Jesus Christ is one who is disciplined unto godliness. And if you have anything to say to nourish the church, if you're going to have that, you're going to have to be nourished yourself. Just very, very common, very understanding, easy to understand. And when you are discerning and you understand error, you have to warn other people about it. And uh, if you want to be healthy, eat the right things, avoid the wrong things. These are just summaries, handholds, if you will, as we've gone through and pulled these principles out of the passages before these. Very, very basic, very needful now more than ever. And now as we hit verse 9, we can see Paul encourages Timothy. He wants this young pastor to see what success looks like in terms of ministry from God's perspective. We have all kinds of ways that we evaluate quote-unquote, success as a minister, and most of those things have no bearing whatsoever in the Scripture. But here, we get, the, we get the understanding of what it looks like to be a faithful minister, what it looks like in success from God's perspective. So he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to start this way. Verse 9, look there. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Now, we saw that Paul uses this, this uh, combination pretty often. Uh, we looked at four other ones last week. We won't do that again. It's a truism. It's an axiom. And we looked at uh, some things that are just floating around the church, these things people at the church knew during the first century. I wish many in the church still knew today. Every believer knows or should know these things. And the passage that they should know is found in verse 10. Look there if you would with me. For it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now we noticed, uh, not surprisingly, that this statement just flows very wonderfully out of verse 8. 
It should be axiomatic in the church that the church is not occupied by a whole bunch of body worshipers. It said that bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things. And so the encouragement, of course, is as you work out, realize that physical workouts only have a small benefit, but godliness is beneficial for all things. So it's axiomatic then that we're not laboring and striving for the perfect physique. We're not spending hours and hours and hours on something that is so short-lived bodily discipline is only of little profit. So he says, it is for this. And then he refocuses on why we labor in the physical gym so that we can Copiao, labor, that's present active indicative, working to the point of exhaustion, working hard to the point of failure. The idea, if you're looking for gym terms, is pushing weight to the point of failure. And then strive on a didzo, present passive indicative, something that's happening to you. You train so that when believers, unbelievers create situations where we're made to strive and we're made to struggle in those situations, you can do it. And that typically has to do with working with no recognition, working with outright opposition, uh, defamation, chiding that spring from testimony. So we train for those things, not so we can be physically fit, but that so we can be spiritually fit and endure. And the passage is written to Timothy, of course, in order for him to continue to be the faithful servant to the church and know what it looks like to be successful from God's perspective. But just like all the other passages here that concern church leadership, there's a much broader application because there's only always one standard of holiness, only one standard of faithfulness. There's not two, one for those who lead and one for those who don't. As we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, all those requirements for those who are elders and overseers that they have to meet in order to discharge the, this office are all the, just the general standards for godliness for everyone, and that's the example then in the pulpit. And so it's the same here. The standard of faithfulness for Timothy, of course, is for every servant of the church. Timothy serves as an example, but everyone working for the kingdom then falls in line here. And so believers are to be a group of people who are training, if you will, and what they're training in is for their soul. And they train hard so they can labor and strive. And so they can be conformed then to the will of God, so they can be godly. And that profits for time and eternity. Not just temporary working out in the gym, which only has limited benefit, and if you stop, it's gone. They work for the kingdom of God on whom they've set their hope, and so godliness then is the pursuit of the excellent minister. He uses all the means of grace available. When we say minister, that's the word servant. Realize it's talking to, to everyone who serves in the capacity of the kingdom in the church, and so they will use all means of grace available. Prayer, Bible study, spiritual disciplines, laboring to show forth the fruit of the Spirit, so that those things become clear in your life, putting away wicked things from you, evaluating things correctly as you examine yourself, putting away those things that you shouldn't be taking in. Prayer, Bible study, obviously always supposed to be part of your daily time with the Lord. Spiritual disciplines, sometimes fasting, the Lord's table, confession of sin. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That's how we come into the kingdom, and that's how we stay in fellowship with the King. Active service, plugging yourself in. You realize you've been gifted for service in the local church. If you're not serving, you're in sin. You have to find a place to discharge your spiritual gifts. That's how you came into the kingdom, if you remember. Somebody using their time and their talent and the gift the Lord gave, gave you the gospel, and you came into the kingdom. That's how the kingdom is perpetuated, and, and that's how it grows. Accountability, maybe it's somebody that you're an accountability partner with, and that helps you with spiritual discipline. Whatever it is, all the spiritual means are applied in this discipline of godliness. And that was principle number five. It's where we finished up last time. Those are the pursuing, those that are pursuing godliness 
work out spiritually so they can give it all for the kingdom of Jesus on whom they have set their hope. And the words, we fixed our hope, El Pizzo, one of my favorite parts of this passage. In the perfect tense, it just means you have fixed your hope and it continues to be fixed on what? The living God. We pour our lives out with joy and full confidence for the salvation that is our sure reality. That's what it means, the living God. The one who is raised, the one who is there, the one who is eternal, and our hope is in Him, and it's not a false hope. And that's why we train, and that's why we exhaust ourselves, and that's why we endure, and that's why we sacrifice, and whatever it is that we need to do, this is our motivation for being in the spiritual gym from verse 7. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself, it says, for the purpose of godliness. So it's our motivation for enduring whatever we have to do and fight whatever battles we have to fight that are in our lives. So this is just a real wonderful imagery to remind you to, again, a gym term, leave it all on the field. Now remember, as we go through this, it kind of sounds like legalism. Well, you have to work, these things that you have to do. Uh, these are, that seems like a lot of stuff. I'd just rather rest. I want to rest in the Lord. I'm just going to let the Lord do it. Well, as we say all the time, the Lord's commands are for us and not for Him. He commands us to do something, that's what we do, and we respond. And so it's not legalism, because remember, legalism is self-centered. Legalism is, legalism is I'm going to do this so somebody else will think I'm godly, or I'm holy, or I'm spiritual. Rather, spiritual discipline, spiritual discipline is God-centered. That's the heart that says, and we saw this whole idea, it's the heart that says, I'll do this thing because I love God and I want to please Him. Or... I want to give my all for the kingdom of the one who's ransomed my life. It is my goal above all other goals that somebody will recognize what I do. No, to prepare correctly in order to finish the course and get the prize for his glory, even though nobody may see. See, that's true spirituality. And the good servant of Jesus Christ will commit to spiritual training because it's profitable for all things. And beloved, if we believe that, and this is the thing, then it won't matter how busy we are or how demanding our occupation may be. Because that's always the default mode. I just wasn't busy enough to be in the Word. I just wasn't busy enough to have an accountability partner. I just wasn't busy enough to fast or come to the Lord's table or, or put to work the fruit of the Spirit. I, just wasn't I was too busy to get that done. Listen, you're never going to be too busy to do that. You're always going to make time for things that are most important. So examine what you're doing and where you're spending your time, which is the purpose for verse 8. Don't spend your time laboring hour after hour for something that doesn't last. Labor for things that are eternal. Now, for it is for this, look back there, that we labor and strive because we fixed our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. And as you look at that passage, you realize there is this short term and there's an eternal effect here. Godliness is profitable for all things, both in this life and the one to come. Now, illustrating that really, really well, and one that I really like, and I think it's just one small fragment of an illustration where we could spend Sunday after Sunday just illustrating this passage or what it looks like for an eternal effect and how to spend your life in the short term. But first, first, or 2 Corinthians 5, 9 illustrates the importance of preparation. Why do we labor? Why are we ready? Why are we fit? Well, here it is. Therefore, we have this as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. What's that mean? Whether we see him face to face at our death or at the rapture or whether the Lord allows us more days living here, this life he's made us a steward of, we want to be pleasing and we know what that means. 
That's not self-defined and subjective. We just spent two Sundays on what a faithful minister of Jesus looks like. So we know what it means to be pleasing to him. It's not just whatever you think is pleasing to him. It's what he says is pleasing to him. Now, we saw here Paul gives some reasons for being spiritually disciplined. He gives some reasons uh, for and, and what it's going to look like at home or absent to be pleasing to him. And the first one is found in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's just very, very straightforward. There is an accountability someday. A fixed date, you know is coming. He's made it clear it's going to come. And just as a reminder, the first reason I'm going to have to stand, that I'm going to work hard and I'm going to labor and I'm going to strive in the gym, the spiritual gym, so that I'm ready to do these kinds of things is I'm going to have to stand before Christ. And he's going to take a look at everything that I've done, how I've spent my time, how I've used the resources he's given me, words that I've said, opportunities that I've had, that I've been given in light of the kingdom. How did I use all of that? He's going to take a look at the whole life Everything he's given you, all the opportunities you had, and you're going to stand in judgment for that. I'm going to stand before the Lord. I'll receive from his hand a reward which is commensurate with my services rendered to him, whether it's been good or useless. And in 1 Corinthians 3, we've got the other side of that, which is that it equates what you do in this life to building a spiritual house. Foundation of Jesus Christ, and on that, on that foundation, what? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. You're building with some kind of material every day you live, every moment the Lord gives you to, to be in this life. You are laboring to build with something. And then someday there's going to be a judgment by fire and all the stuff that's flammable is going to be burned up. And some will find that they don't have anything left. And that's precisely what the Bible says is the outcome for some. What is it? I'm going to escape with my robe of righteousness. Like you'd escape from a fire. Nothing left except your righteousness given to you by Christ. That foundation on which you built. And others are building and faithfully building for the kingdom and things with motives and the right uh, approach to it. And they're going to have gold, silver, precious stones. Those things will last. So exactly the same understanding. You're going to stand before the Lord, receive from his hand, commensurate with what you've done to him, whether it's good or useless. And so I realized then that my training is for my own eternity as I minister. It has to do with my own destiny. What's going to happen later? And then the second reason from this passage in verse 11 is, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And the idea there is, I have to look beyond myself and I have to see this lost world. And they don't have this perfect, sure hope. They have sure judgment. That's where they're headed. And because I know how terrible that will be, I use my life to persuade them with the gospel. So, sum it up. I work hard in training because I know this has eternal consequences for me in terms of reward and for those who may hear the gospel in terms of their destiny. So, this is all part of what we're involved with. And these are just a, a few perspectives that really push the servant of God to train. And success from God's perspective is then to be committed to the hard work because it's a work with a purpose that's bigger than me, secured in a sure hope, in a living God who doesn't forget our work. And just as a footnote, and I think this is important as we think about that last hymn we studied, this understanding that missionaries throughout the years have held on to this, wherever you lead, I'll go. Men and women have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and gone to the far reaches of the world, and they've deprived themselves of almost every earthly pleasure and pursuit. 
and they have endured tremendous hardship and difficulty. They've left behind family and a familiar culture and the comforts of Western society, and they've lost family members and children to disease and accidents and murder, and some of them ended up as martyrs themselves. And they did those things because their hope was set on a living God, and they had the assurance that the living God would provide life for them past this life and a reward for them beyond what they gave up. See, it was a sure hope. So they trained hard, and they did what they were going to do, and they invested their life in things that last. And then when it comes to that judgment, they're going to find lots of that stuff stays. Why? Because those are gains, not like a physical gym, but a spiritual gym that stay with you. It's the same mindset that we saw in 2 Corinthians 1.8. Paul says, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, mark it, he on whom we have set our hope. That's very familiar language to us, isn't it? We've set our hope on the living God. We've set our hope, Paul says, and he will yet deliver us. So in carrying then this gospel of Jesus to the mission field, Paul really set that standard, didn't he? He understood what this looked like. And every missionary that's gone out has had the same understanding. He was overloaded with troubles beyond his strength to carry them. That's exactly what it says. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength. He constantly had the threat of death on him. That's what he said. We despaired even of our life. Indeed, it says we had the sentence of death within ourselves. There was actually a sentence of death. Somebody or some people had really declared that if I see Paul again, I'm going to kill him. So Paul knew that that was possibly the case. And they had no way, it says, indeed, the sense of life within ourselves. We had, couldn't trust in ourselves. There was nothing Paul said we could do on the mission field that was going to make any difference in the final outcome. It wasn't up to us. We couldn't change any of that. You know, missionaries live that way today. There are missionaries in Pakistan today, this morning, who live just like that. They know that there are people who have said, if I see you and you do this again, I'll kill you. They live with that threat of death. And there's nothing that they can do to deliver themselves from any of that. This is just as much reality today as it was then. So Paul says, listen, I just comforted myself. It's my favorite part of this passage. I comforted myself because I knew that if I were killed during the course of the ministry, God could raise them back to life if he wanted them to continue on. That's what it means. We had the despaired even of life, even the sentence of death, so that we could not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's that mean? He's just like, listen, I can't worry about this. I can't, there's nothing I can do to change it, but if they kill me, God can raise the dead. So he can just make himself look even more glorious by just raising me back up and I can keep on going. And that's what Paul said. So what was his hope? His hope was in this living God who has the power to intervene and the power to raise the dead and the power to, to uh, reward faithful service. He was overloaded, but God was able to carry it. And Paul says, God delivered us from that peril, and God will deliver us ultimately. Isn't that great? He delivered us from that peril, so we had the sentence of death on us, but we didn't die. God delivered us from the persons who said that they would kill us, and we didn't die, and he delivered us from that particular thing. 
but he also will ultimately deliver us. And he pursued all these things because of the hope he has in a God that is the Savior of all men. It's a very familiar language, isn't it? That's the language of this is the faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. And now Paul finishes, God will ultimately deliver us from death. And that's why we do what we do. We're not tied to temporal things. We shouldn't be trying to amass a fortune here so we can indulge ourselves before we leave. We won't, be, we won't want to spend hours and hours in a physical gym without the corresponding hours upon hours in the spiritual gym. We are a hope set on the future. We are saved in hope. We live in hope. In Romans 8.24, very, very similar. For in hope we have been saved. We are saved with a hope of a completion. A glorified body at home with Christ forever. But hope that is seen is not hope. We don't have it yet. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We devote ourselves with intensity to the work and wait for that hope. We live by hope. We work by hope. We don't consume ourselves with the pursuit of things that are here. We have to have eternity in view with perseverance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, let a man regard us in this manner, two things he wanted to be remembered by, two visible things that he wanted people to see and know. What? Number one, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Two things, faithful servant of Christ, the same word we have in our passage currently. What does a faithful servant of Christ look like? We see that in our passage. Paul says, I want to be remembered that way. And stewards of the mysteries of God. I'm taking the, whatever it is that the Lord has given me in the kitchen and bringing it to the table and not spilling anything. Faithfully over and over. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. In other words, if you're going to serve as a steward of the mysteries of God, you've got to do it faithfully. But to me, he says in verse 3, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human cord. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me in the Lord. In other words, I'm not really worried about what people think or what any court thinks, and I don't even have anything against me. That doesn't mean there isn't anything against me. It's just I don't, I'm not aware of that, keeping a short sin list. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. How's he going to do that? Beam of seat judgment? What's built on the foundation of Christ? You're going to stand before the Lord. He's going to examine all your, all, all your motives, all your time, how you spent your resources, all the opportunities you had, everything that you said. How do you use it for the kingdom? That's how he's going to bring it to light. It's kind of unclear sometimes exactly what's going on, right? It's unclear what's getting built, what, what materials are being used, because we're good at really putting up a front and people think it looks spiritual. We're really concerned about what people think about us instead of spending time in the gym and making sure we're building like we should. So the Lord's going to make it all clear, the motives and all of that, and then each man's praise will come from, to him from God. So he says, it doesn't really matter to me what you think of me, really. It doesn't matter what I think. I'm waiting for a time, mark this, when the Lord will make everything I have done clear and how it all washed out in the light of eternity. That's what I'm waiting for. Fruit of that service. I'm not looking for human praise. I'm waiting for God's eternal reward. That's what he's saying. We hope in an eternally living God, he says, who shall someday reward those who faithfully serve and someday bring into eternity the fruit of that service. That's the gains you get to keep. 
And, and I wanted to hit that passage again because we didn't look at a number of those passages last time. And, and if the whole passage is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance in the church, and the church needs to understand it and embrace it, then Berean needs to understand it and embrace it. And I think spending time here is profitable both now and in eternity. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to take some time and, and look at something that I said we'd look at last time. It's kind of its own entity, so I wanted to wait. I want to just kind of uh, give the sense of the verse so you could understand it, how it applies, and then move back to the last part of verse 10. This part right here, these words, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, at first glance, the passage looks like it could be a difficult passage, kind of hard to understand some kind of universal salvation. And in dealing briefly with this idea of universal salvation, I want to limit ourselves for time and, and because some of it's not worthy of pursuing, I want to limit ourselves to Christian universalism and not interreligious universalism. Now, the, the difference between the two is interreligious universalism is the false teaching that says all human beings Every individual will be saved no matter which religious road they travel. It's the false idea that all worship and all religions are all worshiping the same God and take everyone to the same salvation in the end. Now, if you've witnessed to any number of people, you have heard that from them. And I know if you put up your hand, I know if you, I ask for hands, you guys have put it up. I've heard that, if I've heard it once, I've heard that a dozen times from people. And when you hear that, you're going to have to go back further you're going to have to chronologically go back to who is God and who made everything, and you're going to have to work your way forward. Because right now, they're completely deceived with false teaching. And it could be expressed this way. All roads lead to God, and one need not come through Christ to get to God. Now, although that's a really popular belief, and even some Christians, according to the Gallup polls, hold that, which is impossible really for me to understand if you've had any kind of solid teaching, but some Christians even hold that. It's very popular. It can be twisted to fit this false belief. So if you look at that, who's the Savior of all men, especially believers, you just say, well, then everybody's going to be saved, and he's the one who's going to save everybody. It doesn't matter what you believed. And so the passage can be twisted, but what we studied earlier, I think, clearly collapses that whole idea on itself. And just in summary, we've seen from Scripture even more very recently that all false religions worship what? Demons. All false religions worship demons. That is very clear in the scriptures. And when they sacrifice, who do they sacrifice to? Demons. God does not receive that worship, nor does he count that as worshiping him. And we've seen from Scripture over and over again, His judgments on the nations that practice those things are documented very clearly in both the Old and the New Testament. God doesn't accept that worship. That's not acceptable to Him that you kind of travel along and you worship, but you didn't know who you were worshiping, and God's just going to say, well, I'll just count it all as worshiping me. That doesn't work. Scripture says that doesn't happen. And both the Old and New Testament really affirm that. So this collapses on itself. So I'm not going to deal with that too much because I think that we understand that fairly clearly. But here in our passage, I just want to deal briefly with what could at first read, I think, be confusing words that might look like it lends itself to what we could call Christian universalism. It's very popular today, uh, witnessed by the number of books released just in the last 10 years or so. Um, Love Wins and a number of the other ones which just have to deal with the fact that Christ's powerful 
sacrifice was enough to bring everyone in and everyone will be saved. That, that false teaching is very popular today. Everybody's going to be saved. And Christian universalism adds something to that previous statement of everybody will be saved. And it says that all salvation occurs in and through Christ, but everyone will be saved. And that false view holds that all men will eventually be saved and brought back into fellowship with God through the powerful work of Christ. So this view would say then, the Savior of all men, especially of believers, that all things will be resolved in Christ, all things will be resolved in God, and there's no eternal hell, and there's no damnation, and no, is, no one is under judgment that somehow we've this is the most recent book about three years ago. Somehow we've misunderstood all of that. Our dogma has taken us into a very dark place and we can't understand really what the Bible's trying to say. God's too loving and Christ is too loving to ever cast any of humanity away. And so everything then finally wraps itself and resolves itself up in Christ and all men will be saved. That's not what the Savior of all men means because that's not what the Bible teaches. Of course, like all false teaching, it sounds so spiritual and magnanimous, doesn't it? It just makes God look way more loving. From, so from our perspective, when I rewrite this whole thing, I can make God way more loving than He is, and I can make Christ's uh, atonement way more powerful than it is, because it just takes in everybody and brings them all back, see? Well, that's problematic, see? It sounds spiritual, it sounds magnanimous, but the phrase the Savior of all men can't mean that everyone is saved because the Bible doesn't teach one thing in one place and then contradict what it teaches somewhere else. And since God carried all the writers of Scripture along, see, it is consistent because we know there is a hell and we know that hell is eternal. Scripture is very, very clear about that. And the Bible says that it's a place where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. All looking to eternity. It doesn't happen. It is eternal, just like heaven is eternal. And as we've said before, an eternal body will be given to everyone who's ever lived in order to live eternally in heaven or hell. In the final resurrection, all the unredeemed will receive an eternal body and they will receive unto themselves the just payment for their sinfulness because they refuse to trust Christ to pay for it. We know it's a place where the unsaved go and they are set apart from the presence of God forever and ever. We know it's a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place created for the devil and the falling angels and, and a place of torment and isolation and loneliness. It is that which is out from, the Bible says, the presence of God. So when Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you remember, he's talking to the unredeemed Pharisees and they're arguing with him about his origin and where his power comes from. And he says to them, where I go, you can never come. He's speaking to the unredeemed Pharisees that in what he meant was in their present state of unbelief, they would never see heaven. That's where he was going, but they'd never get there. And then if you want to really kind of sum it up, and we could have looked at a hundred passages here. I think this does the best, just kind of uh, sums up what we're saying. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and there are dozens of places, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, let's go there. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fires. So it's going to be retribution coming. That the Lord knows how to, how to preserve that. The Lord knows what uh, is going to happen. And he's going to make sure that the, that the correct things happen to the correct people. 
And he's going to come out of heaven, and he's going to have mighty angels and flaming fire. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that he uses both of those. They don't know God. They don't obey the gospel. You always see that in the scriptures because if Christianity is anything, it is what? It is obedience to Christ. Christianity, if you're going to sum it up, is obedience to Christ. It's obedience to the gospel, right? If the gospel says that you are wicked and depraved and separated from God and you have to repent and believe, then you have to obey the gospel and, according, and you have to lose your life to find it, don't you? So he always uses it this way and he sees it, we see it again this way. They don't know God they don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Because lots of people say they know God, but if you looked at their life on a regular basis, they don't submit to what the Word of God says. And so they can say whatever they want, but there's no obedience to the gospel, so there isn't any redemption. And so he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those who don't obey the gospel, those who didn't come to faith, those who don't know God, the ones that he says in Matthew get away from me, I never knew you. Same group of people. They say all the right things. They do all the right things. They have the churchy uh, slogans down really well. They're the Hebrew 6 kind of people in the, kind of in the orbit around church, kind of doing the church thing. Nobody can really tell the difference. But in their life, they're not producing fruit. They're producing, they're producing briars. Remember when we talked about all that? That's the same group. It's hard to determine what's going on on the outside, but this is the group that doesn't obey the gospel. What happens? Everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and glory of His power. Means that salvation as we know it can't apply to everyone in a redeemed case, can it? Not if when Christ comes, there are those who don't obey the gospel and those who don't know God, and they are separated forever. So it can't say in a, re, in a universal sense, everybody's saved under Christ, can it? Not And this passage also be true. Everyone will not be redeemed. Everyone will not see an eternal home in heaven. So the Bible teaches eternal hell for those who are not saved. This then, when, God's, uh, when it says God is the Savior of all men, it doesn't mean that ultimately all men are going to be saved because that would contradict what we just read. But the idea expressed here Supported, of course, over the history of the evangelical church and its efforts to bring the gospel to the unreached. While we still have time, right, we know that there's a time stamp and there's an expiration date and response to the direct command of Jesus through the Great Commission that is our purpose for living, to love God and join forever and love our neighbors ourselves and then take the gospel out, right? And it's everything we just talked about four missions just a minute ago. It's the reason why people do it. But what we have here at the end of verse 10 who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So again, the question is then, if it can't mean that one thing, if it can't mean universal, universal salvation for Christians, then the question is, what does, in what sense is God the Savior of all men? And if He's the Savior of all men, what does it mean, especially of those that believe? Those are the two questions, I think, that come into play and have been falsely interpreted then, along with some other falsely interpretations, that bring this universal Christianity to the forefront. We know that's false. It can't, that can't be true, and all the rest of the Scripture be also true. Now, in a sense, and I think it's important to get this perspective, the death of Christ Jesus is powerful enough to redeem the whole human race. It is. In fact, the Scriptures say that numerous times. He bore the sin of all mankind. It can't really be any other way. 
His death for sin was such an adequate death as God so determined it that Christ, the sinless Son of God, co-equal with the Father, His substitutionary death is sufficient for all the sins of all the world. I think Romans 5 makes that very clear, that by one man sin entered the world, but by the second Adam, all sin is covered, right? The, the, the illustration is Adam lit one tree on fire and the whole forest lit up and Christ came and put the whole thing out. So we have to understand that. So always in false teaching, there's this shred of truth in there, right? Mixed in that makes it sound so legitimate. But for the reasons we listed, to have delivered all men forever from their sin can't be the sense indicated in this particular passage. He, his, his payment is powerful enough, but not everyone will be saved. Now, in the scripture, when we see this word Savior, we, we want to think Savior from our sins. Every time we see Savior, that's understandable. But that's not the only way the word is used in the scriptures. And what we do want to see in the word Savior is that, oh, that means saved from sin, salvation, all that. But we can't say it's always that way. That wouldn't be true. The noun soter certainly translated as Savior, and it's a proper noun 24 times in the New Testament. It certainly means salvation from sins, but the word is actually translated deliverer or preserver. And so that adds a whole new dynamic. Even in salvation for sin, He is our deliverer. He has delivered us from the penalty of sin. That's the real understanding of the word salvation or Savior. And so in the book of Judges, and just to illustrate that a little bit, we see the word used to refer to those God raised up to deliver or preserve Israel from her enemies. The judges are called saviors, and they delivered Israel from their immediate enemies and the persecution that was happening during that time period. And then you move on, you can see Nehemiah 9.27. You can look all these up if you want. It's in the plural, and it refers to all the men God sent to deliver or preserve the nation. All the prophets, anybody God sent, uh, those who led the nation in godliness, they were sent by God. They're called saviors in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27. And so the word savior is being used in what we can call the temporal eternal sense. And it looks at God's salvation as one, of course, as applied to unbelievers. It includes preservation and deliverance from various evils. Now, let's, let's get a handle on that uh, from the New Testament. And I think you can, you can see that very easily. And that'll lead itself into a proper understanding then of the last part of verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he caused the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Stop right there. Now, God preserves people from disaster. He provides rain for them. He provides food for them. Many blessings in, in life. And to those who are the redeemed, the blessings from God do not end with this life, of course. It goes on for all eternity. So when we see God who is the Savior of all men, and in this adverb, especially uh, believers, uh, that, that is... Uh, Malista, superlative, it just means most of all or above all. And that idea is all through the scriptures. But particularly in the Psalms, you can see this, and we don't have time to look at them all, but just give you a few illustrations as we think about, um, especially a believer, Psalm 31, 23, oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones, the Lord, here's our word, preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. The Lord preserves the faithful. 
right? He is the one who takes care of those who are faithful to him. Psalm 97.10, hate evil you who love the Lord, who, here's our word, preserves the souls of his godly ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So both are there now, right? He preserves the souls in a salvation sense, and he preserves them and delivers them, that's the word again, from the hand of the wicked, even in a temporal sense. So you see it used both places there. Then you look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And we're almost done, but this is just so enriching in our understanding of the nature of God. The Lord knows how to rescue. He knows how to save. And so the nature of God here is very, very clear over and against the world's impression that God's vindictive and capricious. Every time a disaster happens, some say, what? Why would God allow that to happen if he's so loving? You ever heard that? It's such an easy uh, complaint to answer, but we hear it all the time, right? It just, it really reveals really the world's idea of what kind of God God is, if there is a God, or how could a loving God ever send someone to hell? I've heard that many times, witnessing. How could a loving God send somebody to hell? Why would a loving God do that? But here we get this whole other view, a correct view, that God is always the sustainer and always the deliverer and always the preserver, even for those who hate him. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be here, really, to the end of our time uh, teaching. And then we'll be in Acts 27. So hold your finger, get to Acts 17, verse 22. And I want you to read along in your copy of God's Word, because I think it's going to be very illustrated for you and help you to grasp this whole idea of salvation in a sense where it is preservation in the temporal and also then in the eternal. Now, you know this passage probably. You've read it many times before. Paul is, before he comes to Corinth, he is uh, in the Areopagus, and he is talking to the men of Athens, and he's spending some time chatting with them about who they're worshiping and what they're worshiping. And then verse 22 picks up, and Paul's walking around. He sees all kinds of stuff, and then it says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're, you are very religious in all respects. Verse 23, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, verse 25, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Stop right there. Stay right there in in, uh, Acts 17. Now, mark this, and I know you can see this. The point of the passage and Paul's discussion is this. He recognizes, and again, this is what you have to do for people who think everybody, you all get to the same place no matter what you worship. You got to go back and you got to talk about who God is and what he's done. And that's what Paul does. And in his discussion, I think, he he makes it clear, God, in a sense, is the sustainer and the provider of life and breath and land and nations and all things for whom? What's the point of the passage? Everybody, right? You're, You're worshiping all these other gods, but you have this one to the unknown God. I'm telling you, that's the true God, and he's the one who's provided everything for everybody. That's the whole point of Paul's talk. 
You're here, and you have what you have, and you, ha you live in this nation where, that you live in, and you have the health, and you have the children, and you have the family, and you have the wealth, and you have the brain, and whatever it is that you pray these false gods for, God, the true God, the one that you is, is represented by the unknown God, he's the one who provided all this stuff for you. I think you can see that. For everyone, everywhere. Not the false gods, not the idols they worshipped. Those idols didn't give the rain, they didn't give children, they didn't give good things to eat or drink or bountiful harvest, etc., etc., etc. Okay? He was the Savior in that sense. He did it, and we're told, like look at verse 27 now. He did all of that, provided all of that, all over this whole time, so that they would seek God, perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each of us. Why, did he, why was He good? Why did He preserve? Why did He give and all of that stuff? So that they would look to the true God. For in Him we live and we move and we exist. Again, provider of all these things. Even some of your own posts have said, for we are also His children. So in a universal sense, God is the sustainer and provider of life for all men. And so the word Savior can mean sustainer and provider and deliverer. And we've seen that over and over again. Now look at Acts 27. Hold your finger here. We're going to be right back. Acts 27, verse 34. Now, as you turn there, this is another very familiar passage to you. Paul is on a ship, and he has been going to Rome. If you remember, he appealed to Caesar, and he got on a ship, and, and it's been a, just a crazy journey, and in and this passage where we are, he's been driven by, the ship's been driven by a storm for 14 days, and everybody thinks they're going to die, and they're chucking everything over the side, all the food, all the ship's tackle, and everything else. And, and Jesus actually comes and meets with Paul, and Paul is encouraged, and he says this, therefore... I encourage you, verse 34, to take some food, for this is for your, this is our word, preservation, that's the land, soteria, that's for your salvation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Now, here's the question. Is that salvation from sin? So every time we see the word salvation, does it mean salvation from sin and deliverance from hell? No, right here, and we've looked at several others, but right here it's very clear, isn't it? Universal salvation from sin for all that are on the boat because they're connected to Paul? No. They'll be preserved from death on this voyage with Paul. They thought they were going to die. Paul says, you're going to be saved, but not universal salvation. Everyone on the boat, the redeemed, the unredeemed, the idol worshipers, the blasphemers, everybody gets the benefit of this salvation. See? Now look back at Acts 17, verse 29. We're going to wrap up. Now, Paul makes this point here, and I think this, again, will help us confirm our understanding, the actual understanding, the true understanding of this passage, and it's not confusing at all when we understand how the word salvation and deliverer is used over and over in the New and Old Testament. Now, look at verse 29. Being then the children of God, you, you've said we are, so let's just assume that we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, although in their ignorance, what did he provide? Everything. Everything. Where they lived, how they breathed, what they ate, all that. Overlooking the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, I think you can see the connection here. Paul says, 
Even though God has preserved and delivered and saved or sustained, he did all of that and he continues to do all of that to get the attention of the world because he's only going to save from sin of unbelief those who what? Right. Only those who repent. Those are the only ones who get saved. It's not universal Christian salvation through the power of Christ on the cross. It's those who repent. But God is a sustainer and he's good like that, isn't he? And he waits in mercy and allows people to remain in their ignorance, hoping they'll come to salvation, right? It's God's patience is salvation. That's what Romans tells us. And so this is a very important point. He's preserved and he's delivered and he did all that so that people would look and see that he's the one who can save, but he's only going to save if you repent. So that helps us with our passage. So look back at verse 10 and let's wrap it up. It is for this, it's a common saying in the church, that we labor and strive. We fixed our hope on the living God. Everything we do, we recognize he's going to recompense us back. He, he's not going to forget any of the work. We fixed our hope on that. And he's the savior of all men, but especially of believers. You see? He's always provided for everybody. We wouldn't have anything apart from him. So it helps in the faithful labor, the saving function of God delivers and preserves and sustains, but even more so to those that believe. Those who have repented receive that in an infinite amount, you see, and it's never going to end, but he's always been the sustainer of every person. He delivered us, Paul says, and he will deliver us. Paul said he delivered us temporarily from this threat of death, but he also said, but he also will deliver us. Isn't that great? Using salvation in both of those. A temporary salvation because somebody was trying to kill him and they didn't. And an eternal salvation in the sense that Paul had, was redeemed. And that never ends. So, I know it's a lot to take in, but I think it's important to stop there. It helps us our under, with our understanding. It warns us of the false teaching that's so prevalent today. And it, it's so close to even home. You might hear this even in the city. And what a rich reason to praise God who in his nature is the savior and provider and sustainer of all men because he wants all men to look to him to be saved through Christ in repentance. See, in the most complete sense, we have salvation that all of the other things pointed to. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for the blessing of knowing you. We thank you for this uh, powerful passage, which although short, have so much to give us. We thank you for uh, the warning against false teaching, uh, which would negate all of the warnings that you, your son gave us while he was on the earth, all the warnings that you warned your people about that you are the God who saves. Yes, you provide all things for all people. You've made the world and everything in it. It all belongs to you. We wouldn't have anything apart from that, but the true salvation is going to occur through repentant faith. And maybe today you sit here and you realize that you don't have repentant faith, that you haven't come. You were just hoping that God was going to save you because he's good like that. Scripture says you have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. For with the heart you believe and are justified. It means you're made right. With the mouth you confess and are saved. You will have to lose your life to find it, beloved. You have to submit to salvation in the eternal sense Christ is the only one. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. And so today, it's our deep prayer that you come into that right relationship. 
Father, I pray that you'll draw them into yourself. We exalted Jesus today. I pray today men and women will come to know you as their Savior if they don't and be encouraged in the security of this provision you've made if they do know your Son. And we pray that all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for his sake. All God's people said.